Good evening. Hi everyone and welcome to the Sydney Ideas Open Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm extremely pleased to present tonight's lecture by Dr. Yian Wang as part of the Sydney Ideas Open Series. This series aims to not only provide access to the University of Sydney's academic expertise, but to provide an informal setting for discussions that engage the wider community in debate and dialogue. The lecture tonight will run for 40 minutes and will be followed by a 20-minute question and answer session. We've set up the microphone here for you to come down and use for your questions because we are recording the lecture and the questions tonight for a podcast on the university website. So if you can use the microphone, that would be great. The next lecture in the Sydney Ideas Open series is next week, same time, same place, so Thursday night here in the Law School foyer. And we have Dr Adrian Hearn from the University of Sydney talking on Rethinking Good Governance and Transparency, the China-Latin-American-US Triangle. So I hope that's of interest to some of you as well. But I'm now very pleased to introduce our speaker for you tonight. Dr Wang holds a BA in English Literature, sorry, English Language and Literature from Sichuan University in China. She taught English in China for six years before coming to Australia. Then in 1992, she completed an MA by research on the Canadian writer Margaret Atwood, and in 1999 was awarded a PhD from the University of Sydney on the contemporary Chinese writer Jia Pinghua. She was a lecturer in international studies at UTS before coming to the University of Sydney in 2000. One of her current projects is Modernism in the City, a joint research project with colleagues in French and Japanese studies. It examines the international and cross-cultural links between modernism and its artistic expression in relation to Paris, Shanghai and Tokyo in the 20th century. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about this topic in tonight's lecture and I welcome Dr Wang to the lectern. Good evening everyone. Thank you all for coming. And tonight I'm going to talk about um, Chinese art especially the transitional period in the first two decades of the 20th century. So, so why the question? Why modernism and realism? Why the nation? And what has art got to do with it? I will begin by showing you a few slides that Chinese art was at the time of the late Qing period. This, if everybody is familiar with the Art Gallery of New South Wales, maybe you could remember a few years back, Dr. Liu Yang at the Gallery of New South Wales uh, curated this show. This was the typical kind of flower birds painting in the late Qing Dynasty. And then this is the landscape uh, by a famous Qing Dynasty artist as well. And this is another one. So I just want you to have a look and remember the perspective and the composition and, uh, you know, the brush strokes. And then we see the chain. And that's the um, garden of the grand view. That's the illustration of the famous Chinese novel, uh, The Dream of Red Chambers. As you can see, the perspective, because the original Chinese perspective is that you can see everything. It's not the Western scientific one. You can, everything will disappear in the end. 
and uh, also want you to see the importance of uh, calligraphy uh, in Chinese painting. This is also a late Qing painting. And that's how, you know, calligraphy, human body, and animals in, in the painting. And you see, that's the literati with his uh, child servant um, and appreciating the flowers in the garden. Okay, now I'll start talking. So, what has art got to do with it? Why is it important? Yeah. So, art and China's modernization was connected. Yes, when Chinese intellectuals started looking at why Western colonial powers were so strong, why they kind of overwhelmed China, because China for centuries regarded itself as very civilized, very advanced, the center of civilizations of the world. Or in fact, China was all that under heaven that was civilized. But you know, with the opium wars, China or Chinese elite thinkers realized that China actually wasn't as strong as powerful as they thought it was. So how to modernize the nation? Of course, intellectuals debated and they tried on many fronts. One thing what I'm trying to do is that they actually debated, institutionalized, and argued a lot of things about art. But in the history of modern China and in the modern Chinese intellectual history, the art historical aspect has been neglected. So art historians do the art historical events and figures, and intellectual historians deal with the intellectual aspects. And the emphasis has been on political changes and the literature, especially changes in literature, language, and other aspects of culture, even popular culture these days. You, you get a lot of notice, but the art historic aspects has not been um, closely examined. And this is where I want my research to make a difference, and I hope it does. And so what they did is that um, um, they, at the time, a great deal of concepts were imported or learned from Japan. A lot of concepts actually originated in the West, but because Japan modernized itself about five decades earlier, so by the time, Japan actually became much stronger than China, and many Chinese students and intellectuals went to Japan to learn about the ideas, how to modernize the nation, and how to uh, uh, you know, uh, acquire different skills and techniques uh, um, and ideas about modern nation. And one of the things they got is this uh, uh, idea about art and about nation. Even uh, the words nation, art, culture, many other things, Chinese actually reacquired from Japan because Japan initially borrowed a lot of Chinese characters and Chinese ideas. 
but at the time of the early decades of the 20th century, it was China's turn to learn and acquire those ideas from Japan or via Japan. So one of the ideas uh, the Chinese intellectuals began to see is that art actually is connected with nation, connected in two ways. One is that uh, art can represent the nation to the world. Another way of connecting is that art can speak to the national citizens, even though at the time, citizen wasn't exactly an idea that the Chinese had. They had this Guomin, the national people, but uh, the idea of a nation state uh, had just appeared uh, in the Chinese uh, uh, discussions at the time. And uh, modernization of art was really on the agenda of intellectuals, actually much earlier than literature, much earlier than literature. Uh, and, and I've done some research. For instance, Lu Xun published uh, his first writing about how to modernize Chinese art in 1913, based on a series of lectures he gave at Peking University or at uh, uh, Ministry of Education in Beijing in 1912. And his first short story, which regarded as the beginning of Chinese modern literature, um, was published in 1918. Uh, the story was uh, called uh, The Diary of a Madman. That was regarded, or has been regarded, as the beginning of modern Chinese literature. Uh, as you can see, this was actually six or five years earlier. We are really only talking about the first two decades uh, of the 20th century, so five years is actually a long time in terms of uh, cultural change and political change at the time. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> The key questions for the Chinese intellectuals, including the Chinese artists. By the way, when I use the term Chinese intellectuals, probably it's slightly different from the uh, contemporary usage of intellectual, public intellectual in the English uh, discourse. Forgive me for that word. Uh, in, <laughs> in, the, in the English way of speaking, uh, the Chinese invented this idea of zhishifengzi at the time, means, which means you are concerned about national issues, you are educated, and uh, you have certain skills. And literature or writers and artists are really special, especially important in the Chinese intellectual debate and uh, in the practice of, of intellectual desires. So writers and artists are almost automatically intellectuals. And so the key questions for them at the time was that how to modernize art for modern nation. Because art, as we saw just now, the art in Lai Qin uh, was regarded as quite stale, as quite stagnant. And uh, Chinese have been painting that for centuries. It's time to change. And most importantly, it didn't have anything to do with the modern nation. They were done by the traditional literati for 
appreciation in spare time, under the moonlight, or at the springtime. They had nothing to do with mass education, with the modernization of the nation. So how to modernize art for modern China was one of the key questions. And then what ideas and practices should China adapt from the West? How do we do it? What kind of things they should do it? So they debated. There are lots of publications uh, and people writing and debating about those things. And uh, those questions have two assumptions. But these days, probably some scholars would regard those assumptions are mistaken. But those were the assumptions the Chinese intellectuals worked with at the time. First is that modernity was with the West and perhaps Japan, not within China. But of course, these days, uh, Chinese scholars or scholars on China may argue there may be different kinds of modernity. And modernity, many scholars would agree, did not originate in Europe. Modernity may have taken place all over the world in different formats, at different places, and in different ways. I'm just throwing that in, just so in case somebody takes me to task. But uh, those were the assumptions the intellectuals worked with at the time. So we, we need to put these things back into the historical context. So that's the first assumption. The second assumption is that uh, China's art traditions were completely different from those in Europe, and they had nothing to do with the nation. Of course, people will challenge that as well now, especially when you, when you think about uh, um, Impressionism, for instance, uh, um, and some other abstract art, and Chinese artists probably had connections there, the literati art. Sorry, I'm not very good at this remote control business. Okay, uh, I'm just going through very quickly the ideas that impacted on China and what changes have taken place, both conceptually and in practice. Then I'll show you how the paintings really changed. Firstly, as I say, art, as the Chinese translation of Mei Shu, was borrowed from Japan. Chinese didn't have that word. Um, or, of course, art has been practiced by the Chinese for centuries, forever, you know how many years of, of history Chinese civilization has, probably art, uh, had been there all the time. But the concept of art as abstract noun to refer to certain creativity of human society wasn't there. It was borrowed. And actually, Lu Xun, in his um, article, he actually said, uh, Art, actually, was originated from Greek, and the translation should be aite. <laughs> but um, they've already had the Japanese word shu, uh, which means aesthetics and techniques. Uh, they, they, it's already from Japan. Jap the Japanese had already been using that word, so the Chinese borrowed it. And then the transformation of art in conceptualization. What is art? and what things can be called art, and how to practice art, for instance, collection, national museums, how to teach art, 
how to give the mass population an art education. All these things were absent from imperial China. And this was the time that the Chinese thinkers started thinking about it and then immediately, actually, immediately put into action. Uh, as I, I will show, uh, you know, in 1929, China was holding its first national exhibition. At the time, China already had quite a few national art schools and had quite a number, probably a dozen or so uh, art journals and had uh, hundreds of students learning Western art uh, in the West, in Japan, and in China. And, uh, and another change is state intervention. Because art is being seen as connected with the nation, so the state uh, field had a stake in it, especially through the Ministry of Education, Cai Yuanpei. He was a very important figure in the Chinese cultural uh, movement and all the institutionalization of Chinese cultural measures at the time. And he basically initiated, and because he was the first minister of Chinese education, he was able to get funding and get channels to do those things. Uh, and I'll talk more about it. And uh, his um, role in this cultural modernization of China hasn't really been emphasized enough, in my view. So that's the first one. Second aspect of change is the connection of art with public good, with society, and with nation building. Art to represent the nation to itself and to the world. So what does art do? Art does a lot, contributes a lot to, to the nation. And art works to speak on behalf of and to the nation. So art has to speak to its own people. Mm. And uh, also connection of art with political mobilization. Yeah, that's very, very important. Of course, uh, art and, uh, and um, politics were carried, the connection was carried to extreme by the communists, uh, probably in the Maoist era, uh, as we all know now. But then there's this convergence of the purposes of art and writing. Previously, writing was the most important vehicle to connect uh, the intellectuals with the, with the state and with the people. But now, art has moved in. And then, aesthetics education, which was actually promoted, initiated and promoted by Cai Yuanpei at the time, to say China should have aesthetics education uh, for all the people to replace religion. Of course, now you have scholars arguing religion is so important um, for the masses. Uh, but at the time, Chinese intellectuals thought religion was regulated to super, uh, superstition. And uh, Chinese people were too superstitious and um, uh, uneducated. Uh, and so aesthetics in, in education was regarded as very, very important. And then, because of that, yes, um, 
then the movement mar marginalized literati's cultivation of uh, uh, artistic amateurism. Previously, if you relied on your art for a living, then you are craftsman. You didn't have very high social class. You need to be a literatus. You don't rely on your art and craft for living, but as a way to self-cultivate, to demonstrate your cultural depths, and to communicate with uh, um, your friends of equal cultural understanding and learning, and then you are somewhere. So the practice of art and conceptualization of art were very different. And then there was this decreased intimacy between artists, poets, writers, and the decreased uh, intimacy between art or painting and writing. As we see before, you know, the writing is art, and then the painting is art, and most of times they come together. And later on, of course, calligraphy is still high art in China, but increasingly they are done separately from painting. Um, and then now I'm going to show you some the, the change of practice. So that's uh, in the 1920s, it's uh, art students doing life drawing. Uh, this never took place in China before. So this is the first kind of change. And also this kind of sketches and the human body became an important part of art learning. This was a, a very early painting done by Liu Hai Su. Liu Hai Su is one of those earlier ma masters of Chinese modern art. He uh, was self-taught in Shanghai by copying magazines that printed uh, Van Gogh's painting. So you could see this, uh, he did this probably in 1915 or 1918 uh, when he was really a teenager. He opened the first Chinese art school in Shanghai when he was only 15, 16. And he was the first one who uh, initiated, uh, you know, uh, nude drawing. And you have a model uh, in nude, and that actually was quite a scandal. Uh, the government was trying, uh, was trying to arrest him <laughs> and put him in jail because there was the total corruption of Chinese morale. Um, and this was one of the, his earlier drawings as well. And he made a big name yeah, uh, for himself at the time because of his art education uh, uh, contribution and also because of his early ex experiments with Western modernism. Uh, and this is uh, what he did later. And by 1929, he was a formidable artist. And uh, Cai Yuanpei organized funding for him to go and study in Europe. So it was about 15 years after he established his fame that he actually went to uh, France and uh, Germany and toured around Europe. Um, and this was one of the, the things that he did. Uh, actually, this was done in 1927, still before he left. But you see the next one. This is the front gate. Uh, the that was the front gate of, uh, of Beijing, Qianmen. Uh, if you go to Beijing, I think Qianmen is still there, except it's been refurbished. 
And this is the painting that he did very soon after he got to Paris. So this is Notre Dame uh, at Paris. And that was the Western painting. And in the Chinese brush and ink painting, um, changes were happening as well. This was done in 1922 by He Xiangning. Yeah, uh, you can see one is then the choice of the subject changed. Lion, you know, because you know Napoleon said that China was the lion that was asleep. Once it's waking up, the whole world had to shake, shake, you know, had to shiver. And uh, at the time, uh, many intellectuals were trying to identify China was a lion that was awakening at least. Uh, and you can see body, anatomy gradually is coming. This is uh, uh, one of the Shanghai school's painters, Ren uh, Yi. Uh, this is a self-portrait, uh, self I think. That's done by his brother. This was the first time uh, a very masculine body that came into Chinese painting, especially the ink brush painting. That's all uh, in the early in 1910s. Yeah. And uh, this is a later one, but I just want to show you how the literati painting has changed as well. Uh, Professor Jeremy Bami wrote a book on uh, this artist, uh, but I just want to show you how you know, this literary, you know, this literati painting has changed as well. And with this artist in particular, his poems are always funny and, and sarcastic and, and all that. And this was done by another artist, uh, Lin Fengmian. Lin Fengmian was sent, well, went to Europe in, uh, I think, starting from 19... Uh, very early 1910s that he studied in Paris and in Berlin and in many other parts. This was one of his earliest uh, experiments with ink and brush and, and, and all that. Also you can see there was this uh, national spirit somewhere hidden there. That's earliest Lin Fengmian. And this was what, when he was strongly influenced by German expressionism. Uh, as you can see, and also with uh, Christianity and, and other things. Uh, it's a pity that many of his paintings, we could only uh, have a look from magazines because uh, his paintings mostly destroyed. Some of his paintings were in Berlin's museums, which was bombed and disappeared. And then after he came back to China, and then there was war in China and uh, political disturbances in China, and actually during the Cultural Revolution, he had to burn his own paintings to keep out trouble. And this is one of his earlier ones. You can see Matisse probably somewhere uh, because they went to Paris at the time. This was one of his later ones. He was also experimenting in how to renovate and revitalize Chinese ink brush painting. Very simplistic, but very, uh, there is simplicity but beauty there. That this uh, is his landscape. So you can see the landscape is changing. Just try to remember the earliest Qing Dynasty landscape. It's very, very different. And this was a painting that he did uh, after the Cultural Revolution. This was uh, uh, based on the Chinese uh, um, 
the Chinese historical event, the Red Cliff Battle, which there was a horror movie made last year. And, and he painted the painting after the Cultural Revolution based on Peking Opera performance. But it was at the end of the Cultural Revolution, and you could see that his emotions there because he has he had so much trouble actually before uh, the Cultural Revolution. He had so much trouble because of his style, because he didn't follow the realist uh, route. He had been in trouble ever since 1950s. And this one of his latest still life. Yes, and also still life was a genre that the Chinese artist uh, uh, acquired from the West. The Chinese, of course, painted objects, but ideas and con the concept and the composition uh, was very different. And that's another still life by another artist. This artist, uh, Pang Xunqing, and he also had, these paintings don't exist anymore. He had burned his own paintings as well. Uh, and ruined them. Uh, this, uh, this I think painting still existed. Uh, it's, it's still there in the Chinese National Museum. Uh, sorry, uh, um, sorry. Uh, I want to go back. Uh, I just keep talking. Maybe Meredith could help me. Just go back once, uh, one slide. This was artist from Sichuan because I'm from Sichuan. So um, this was artist who was the earliest one to went to Paris to study. He went there in 1906, while Xu Beihong went in 1908 or something. Uh, he was the earliest. He's from Sichuan. Yes, this painting. This is very interesting because I came across it this Christmas in Berry. New South Wales in the in a small town in a bed and breakfast place. And when I walked in and in the, in the lobby it's this big print. And I thought, well, I chose the right place to stay this time. And I asked the, the hotel uh, owner, I said, uh, where did you get this print? And, he, and she just said, oh, well, because Barry is so pretty, I don't want any landscape. Um, so I just want somebody, you know, at the nude is perfect for the hotel people, you know, get guests. And she just bought it from a catalog. While this artist was in Paris, came back to China in the 1920s, around 28, 29, because of his style. At the time, I guess he was too much ahead of his time. His art was totally rejected by the Chinese intellectuals and by the market. So he decided he was French, so he went back to Paris and lived the rest of his life in Paris and died there in poverty until he was rediscovered recently in 2004. Uh, Paris Musée Guimet um, organized a retrospective for him mm, and, uh, and had quite a beautiful catalog uh, of his works there, except he, he really died in poverty. And, um, and this was also used for the cover of a book by Hong Yin, uh, Daughter of the River. Mm. Now I come. I'm sorry. Oh. Oh. This, uh, 
sorry. Yes, so you can see that very avant-garde and quite like still life, despite the same. Um, his name in Chinese is Chang Yu, but he normally signs in his French name, Song Yu. <laughs> the French call him Song Yu. Um, and this is by a female artist. This is the imp uh, also painted in the 1920s of West Lake. And this is by Pang Xunqing. It was done in 1931. Uh, again, because he had to destroy his own painting, so we can only get this from magazines. And this, he painted two of them. This is such as Shanghai, and this is such as Paris. And I could, couldn't get the color image of the other one. And so you could see. Uh, he remained a professor of fine art, I think, in Guangzhou, a fine art school. Uh, there, uh, but uh, he destroyed most of his paintings. And this is another uh, kind of modernist. Um, this is called the. Uh, mm, I can't remember the English word for that. Vorfism? Uh, yes, so Pai. Yes, Vorfism. Yes, so he was there. And this actually was uh, by a woman artist. Uh, this is Pan uh, Yuliang. She also she went to Paris in the early late 1910s or early 1920s, and then went back to China in Shanghai around the time 1920s, uh, late 1920s. But her painting also uh, was completely rejected because he was a prostitute. He was an orphan. He was sold into a brothel um, by some of his her relatives. And then uh, one of uh, her clients married her and then saw his, her talent and uh, gave her the money to study art in Paris. So she did that. But after she came back to China and held exhibition in Shanghai, and her, painting, uh, her paintings were vandalized. Because, uh, and then she also decided she's French. It's not Chinese. And she never returned to China. That's her self-portrait. Yeah. And this is another one, but except this is the English Parliament House you can see. Uh, I just want to show you this. That, that's by the same artist. This is uh, what he painted as Red Sea. He was in Russia as well. And this is Guan uh, Zilan, a woman artist. But you can see the, the, the modernist uh, urge except now we come to realism. And this was done by Xu Beihong, one of the leading formidable state artists of People's Republic of China, actually from the Republic of China as well, as I will argue. As you can see, this is one of his uh, um, exercises when he was studying at uh, the Paris Fine Arts School. And uh, after he came back to China, this is what he felt uh, all Chinese artists should be painting. As you can see, the nation, the national spirit. Mm. And uh, uh, this, the title of this painting is called Waiting for the uh, Deliverer, which means people are suffering. They're waiting for the great leaders to, to arrive, to save them. Uh, as you can see, I just, all the Chinese were so skinny. 
Now you, you can see, and then it's changed, and then the nation became strong. You can see the national spirit. The title of this painting is the, um, the, foolish, um, the foolish Man Tries to Remove the Mountain, which uh, Mao actually used. This is a fable, a Chinese fable, to show national spirit. As long as we are determined, we can achieve anything. Yeah, except my students always say, why can't you just move the house rather than the mountain? Because why the old man trying to remove the mountain is because the mountain is right in front of his house. Um, so he wants to move the mountain so that it can get to the city much quicker. And, but, you know, this is the Chinese and the Western difference for the Chinese. You know, the site of your home is your ancestor's site. You can't touch it. Can only move the mountain, but so this, but this painting, um, you know, it's what he did in two ways. One is the thematic concern. Another one is the composition. But most importantly, is the body. And this is the ink brush painting. So he's trying to do a lot of changes here, as you can see. Except some someone pointed out. But the body is not Chinese, they're Indian. <laughs> they are actually, he, he painted the major characters based on the Indian models that when he was staying in India at the time. So this is another one of his paintings. You can see all these paintings if you go to Beijing and visit the Xu Hong Museum. And also he did is that uh, the horse, he draw the horses. Remember the horse I showed you before, and compared with the horse here now, they're very, very different. Okay, now I'm going to uh, summarize uh, what happens to the impact and changes. Oh, I just look at that. Yeah. So the first thing is that the professionalization of art and art practice. Artists are now professionals. They are respectable like writers, like any intellectuals, and they can become professors. So that's a very big change. And then you have the introduction of scientism in art. Your perspectives, your, your composition, the people's body, you know, the figure's body, the anatomy, you just have to know they do a lot of those drawings according to the Greek models and all that. Uh, and the sketches of life drawing and all that, the changes in the learning process. Previously, you know, an art student just have to copy the masters until one day you are enlightened and then you can have your own style. Uh, but now it's all professionally done in high school. You do the drawing, you do the brush, you do sculpture, you do many other things. And probably you, can, you ha also have to do art history and theory. <laughs> and then the yeah, introduction of Western genres. Oil painting was introduced and favored and still favored. Yes, oil painting actually becomes the, the narrative form of national stories. If there is an important national uh, historical event, now Chinese government most likely will, is going to commission some artists to paint. Uh, um, like Sydney artist Shen Jiawei has been commissioned to quite a few of historical events. 
and then we have uh, rejuvenizing tradition, rejuvenization of Chinese traditional ink brush painting, as you have seen. You know, like Xu Bei Hong's horses are different. And also, I want to mention is uh, the earlier artists, the, the ones that I mentioned, all of those artists began with traditional Chinese artists. They all learned the ink brush painting before they started the Western training. So they all do both. They do Western oil painting and, and other things, but they also do Chinese ink brush painting. And uh, for these days, it seems that someone does that seems to so extraordinary, uh, or not quite, because you, you cross the genre. But in those days, it was very common. And then reinventing of the, the woodcuts. Chinese have always had woodcuts, except they were uh, as illustrations in the book uh, most of times. Or anyway, it's mass produced and has never, Chinese woodprints were not highly regarded pre-1910s. And then with the West introduction, and especially with the promotion by Lu Xun, uh, woodcuts became an important genre in modern Chinese art history. And other things uh, I want to just show you there. You know, for 50 years or so, about 434 Chinese students went to study. And many of them went under the scholarship of the Boxer Rebellion's uh, indemnities. So I just want to mention that because I want to see how I should, uh, you know, understand the process of colonization of the, the clashes between China and Western powers. That's one of the important things. And the leading intellectuals were actively introducing arguing ideas about art and art practice. And then, uh, I've said that before, Tai Yuanpei, basically the three artists I mentioned here, they were all sponsored by Tai Yuanpei. Sometimes he gave them scholarships, sometimes he just sponsored them himself. And, uh, and then and Chinese government actually, especially when Liu Haisu went to uh, Paris, uh, uh, Tai Yuanpei, organized the funding and had uh, Chinese art exhibitions that toured in Europe. But you have to remember at the time, China was war-torn. China was very poor. So to get those money to do those things was extremely difficult. And now let's come to Shanghai in, 19, in the 1929. Two things that happened in Shanghai in 1929 that was very important. One is the first Chinese national art exhibition that was held. It was called the first Chinese national art exhibition under the Ministry of Education, because there wasn't anybody else. Yeah, it was just had to be, had to be. And Cai Yuanpei and Lu Xun actually had this idea of a national art exhibition in the 1910s, in 1912, literally, when Lu Xun was giving the public lectures, he actually said that. They had the idea, but it took them about, you know, 17 years to get it eventuate. And Cai Yuanpei played an enormous role in this because 1927 was the year of white terror, according to the communist history. 
um, Jiang Kai-shek consolidated his power, and uh, Republic of China eventually landed in Nanjing, and China began to have some stability. And Cai Yuanpei lobbied Jiang Kai-shek to say, now you've got the nation, you've got to have the painting. And he agreed. And so they had this uh, painting. But look at the scale of the first national expression. When I, when I was doing research, I was so astonished to discover this because all this hadn't been really written substantially. Uh, research has just started doing uh, all this um, research, partly is because many uh, primary sources were only recently released, um, only in the past 10 years or so. And then there was this perplexity debate between Xu Beihong, the leading realist artist, and Xu Zhimo. I have to say something about Xu Zhimo, because Xu Zhimo has been remembered even now, or known in China and outside of China, as a romantic poet. And every Chinese probably know his famous poem, Farewell to Cambridge because he was in Cambridge uh, for one, slightly more than a year there. And uh, in 2008, actually, Cambridge University laid a stone in memory of Xu Zhimo. I think Cambridge eventually realized how important <laughs> Xu Zhimo uh, is in Chinese art history or uh, cultural history. Um, Anyway, Xu Zhimo was befriended Roger Fry in Cambridge. Roger Fry was the Slate Professor of Art History in Cambridge and was the first one who started introducing imperialism to Great Britain. And also he was the first one to introduce Oriental art to the general British public. And uh, Xu Zhimo was there as kind of daily friends who communicate on a daily basis. And uh, the Cambridge um, dean at the time, or Dom, if you call him, it was Goldie Smith. They were all members of the Bloomsbury. So the Chinese intellectual at the time had a lot of connections with the Bloomsbury group. Uh, that research is just recently being began to be done, like uh, uh, Lin Shuhua's connection with uh, Virginia Woolf. Uh, Lin Shuhua's first, uh, Lin Shuhua wrote the first women's uh, autobiography in English, and it was published by uh, Leonard Wolf after Virginia died. Mm. Okay, anyway, Xu Zhimo, why Xu Zhimo? Xu Zhimo, even though he, is a he was a literary figure, but he was very interested in art, and he was inv involved heavily with the 1929 art exhibition. He was the major. He was a major mem member. Uh, so this was the publication uh, of the art exhibition, fundamentally organized by Xu Zhimo, and this was the publication of uh, three daily. You know, the during the exhibition there was a publication that. That was this that came out every stage three days. It was a forum for the artists to debate the ideas um, and also uh, for you know to introduce different art and different styles. And uh, the debate, the perplexity debate, took place 
with this journal. And uh, Xu Zhimo was the major editor, and you can see that his name, his name is listed there. Uh, if you can read Chinese, <laughs> it's there. Um, and he was one of the key members of the organizing committee that decide what goes in, what doesn't go in for the art exhibition. So he was very important, except none of these events has been recorded in Chinese art history. Not yet. I'm trying to do it. And I have to do it quickly, otherwise some, somebody else will probably get ahead of me. And uh, so they were Xu Beihong, Xu Zhimo, they were all on the committee. But Xu Beihong resigned five days after he got onto it because uh, mm, he objected to the uh, you know, the committee's inclination to include all the modernist writers uh, and artists and, um, and, and, and all that. And uh, he believes that art should be for the nation, be able to speak to the nation, and only social realism. Those are not his words. Those are my interpretations. That's why I put in the, in the, in the way. Because uh, modernism and the realism weren't the expressions they used, but the ideas were there. And uh, only socialism, which means that this mimic representation of social reality and the figurative, uh, figurative expressions of national aspirations. If you think about his paintings, you know what he meant by, by, by those. Uh, would be able to speak to the masses and therefore should be in the exhibition. Anything else should be out. Mm. And uh, in particular, works like those of Cezanne, Matisse, or Bonnard uh, should have no place in China. And uh, they, because they don't show that those artists had any skills, had any training, and they are harmful to the national spirit. Yeah. What I want to say is that uh, uh, Xu Beihong wasn't the only one. He had a lot of supporters. Mm. So there was the perplexity debate because it had rejoinders and rejoinders and everything else. And also, in 1912, Cai Yuanpei, the Ministry of Education, he was in Berlin and he met Picasso. And three years later, he went to Picasso's studio to, to see Picasso's uh, work. At the time, at that time, 1915, uh, Picasso was doing his uh, cubism, and um, Cai Yuanpei had a look and said, "This no use. This is really no use for China." And so you could see at the time. But Xu Zhimo held very different views, as you can see the quote I, I put it here may not be the perfect translation as I did in the rush, but. Uh, that's his view. He certainly, he firmly believed that art should be the expression of the self from the heart uh, of the artist. Uh, how he, how the artist in experiences life, uh, then he should paint what he, how he feels. So the nation is now seen there. And then I'm just going to tell you the debate. The debate, it seems because actually Xu Zhimo was the editor, except Xu Zhimo's uh, rejoinders uh, weren't all published. Only one of his rejoinders was published in, in the paper that he himself edited. He wrote another uh, about uh, 2,000 word rejoinder, which I saw records of it by other editors. 
but nobody so far has seen the original. That has probably been lost. Um, and um, I'm trying to find it. I'm trying to see if I can, you know, uh, find it somewhere in a probably old bookstore in Shanghai or somewhere, but probably has been lost. But uh, anyway, I was just going to say that Xu um, Hong, yeah, uh, won the debate, even though it didn't seem to be like that at the time. But very soon, Xu Hong was uh, uh, appointed president of Beiping uh, National Art School, and he basically became the uh, the artist of the, of the state. Um, because he held very important positions in Beijing and subsequently when communists took over as well, uh, his painting and that realist style, that connection, that connection, that compulsory connection between the painting and art, uh, between the painting and the nation actually was institutionalized because of his position there. Therefore, the other artists like Lin Fengmian, uh, the one who did all these stylistic ones, just didn't have any place, uh, always in trouble. And um, so, and, uh, and what, what's really interesting is because Xu Zhimo, uh, he did a lot of this editing, a lot of this publication. He was also the Xu Zhimo continue to be friends with, with you. They both have the family name Xu. So in the Chinese art history, sometimes they refer to the Er Xu Zhizheng, uh, the debate between the two Xus. And uh, because the title used by Xu Beihong was Huo, perplexities, normally translated as perplexity, sometimes translated as uh, bewildered. Or, uh, and then Anyway, there's lots, lots of discussions about perplexity and over this and after that. But Xu Zhimo continued to contribute to Chinese art history until his sudden death in 1931. But none of those things have been documented in Chinese art history or Chinese intellectual history. Chinese publications to date still only talk about his romance and his romantic poems. So yeah, um, that's what I'm trying to do, rewrite history <laughs> for a good cause. Um, and then we see um, what's the importance I just want to summarize now. The first national art exhibition in Shanghai marked the coming of age of Chinese modern art and art for our sake was suppressed before and totally suppressed after Mao came to power. Mm -hmm. And uh, 1929 was eight years before the Japanese invasion and 20 years before communists uh, took over and the realism was already the most favored style. Why I say that? Because many s scholars still write about the realism really uh, took hold of China after 1937, after Japan, Japanese invaded China and the national form and national spirit were, were needed but I'm trying to push history back at least 10 years, if not earlier. Um, so that's uh, what I'm trying to do, rewrite history. Um, and uh, the questions I see, yeah. 
So it said, uh, um, modernists lost the battle in the name of the nation. And, uh, and I also want to say modernist art, like Chinese literature, modernist literature were both yeah, uh, suppressed until much uh, later, I would say, until late 1980s. And now probably they are all busy being postmodern <laughs> in that regard. Mm. The questions now I'm trying to answer intellectually and academically is to say if realism was the right and inevitable choice for those confronted with the overwhelming colonial powers, was that the only choice? I have had a brief look at other um, nations, for instance, Japan, for instance, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, other Southeast Asian countries. It seems that to be the case, but uh, I am not conclusive about it yet. And then uh, my other question is how should we understand the meanings and implications of colonial modernity? Means do the colonized always trying to imitate their masters? And if so, is it for the good or, or for the better or for the worse? Or how do we assess the impact of colonization? And of course, China's case is slightly different because China was never completely colonized. And it's only semi-colonized. And being semi, and also there was multiplicity of colonial powers in China. And so you have different countries you know, having different set of rules. So there was never a, a set rule for, for the Chinese. So the Chinese. Uh, was still able to speak and write in their own language, for instance. So many of the Chinese intellectuals didn't feel they were colonized. Actually, they were enjoying the cosmopolitanism. So there are different ways of looking at the impact. And I'm going to finish by showing you one of those modern uh, <laughs> realist uh, you know, woodprints. This is the image that Chinese, anyone educated in China would know. This, the title of this painting is called China Row, which was, you know, look at the knife that he was able to grasp, but then his hands were tied. So there are many, many intellectual readings, different readings of this painting. But up to now, I think there are different, this, this, this is a painting by Gao Xingjian, uh, the Nobel Prize literary laureate. And uh, this is ink brush uh, on paper. Um, and another one. And they're very, very different. So Chinese art, I think there's hope. And I'll stop here. And if you have any questions, thank you. So if anyone has any questions, please, could you just come up? That would be great. Just so we can record the questions properly. Thanks. Thank you very much for a wonderful lecture.
I visited China four times. I'd like just just to make a couple of comments. Firstly, Russian realist paintings, which go back to the 19th century, you might like to look at that. A comment about homosexuality. Uh, it has now been found, there was a huge debate in China on that, which parallels this. There's a new book from Hong Kong, something obsession or something. Uh, and the third comment is um, Mrs. Nielsen, Mrs. Judith Nielsen's uh, gallery in Chippendale uh, is a brilliant con continuation of all this. People may not know about that, but I would urge people to go and have a look at it. Thank you. And it combines both realism and the modernism, doesn't it? Yes, thank you. Thanks of course, yeah, thank you. That is uh, the White Rabbit uh, Gallery in Chimpendao, just behind the demolished brewery. Um, it's really worth going. I urge all of you to go. You can just Google White Rabbit um, before you go. You have the actual address and the opening times. But uh, most of the, the things there, of course, is the continuation of these artists uh, here. Very different now. Very different now. Except at the moment I'm dealing with 1910s and 20s, Russian art come in slightly later, and also the Northern European and the Russian influence on China at the time were largely the woodprints. Thank you. At the beginning of your talk, you spoke about uh, the role of art in improving the quality of the Chinese people. It's clear in 1929 that this national exhibition provided a venue in which thousands of people could uh, see the art, talk about it, debate it, and so on. But in the pri prior decades, from 1900 to 1929, how did large numbers of people get to see this art? Was it published in magazines? Was it, did people make posters? Can you say something about uh, how many viewers these paintings had? Thank you, yes. Um, very good question, thanks. Yes. Um, of course, uh, art and art, uh, art appreciation always have to do with the country's um, uh, cultural traditions. And appreciating, appreciation of art um, was always done in Chinese society, societies by the elite, by the educated elite. So to take the art to the general populace uh, had to be a great leap forward. But it was done at the time through magazines and newspapers, especially in major cities, like in Shanghai, there was uh, uh, some like cartoons, uh, uh, the cartoons started being published. Um, so there, there was um, things done, but still uh, to the popular taste. The art exhibition was a big event. Actually, in the Shanghai newspaper, Shenbao, at the time, the news about the art exhibition was published um, a year before uh, the exhibition took place. That's where the committee called for submission of art. And then, as, uh, as the date became closer, there was daily, almost daily reports of the events. 
and there was big reports about opening ceremony and about the closing and how many dignitaries uh, visited the exhibition and what kind of debate they had. There was a lot of uh, reports uh, in the newspaper and uh, thousands, thousands of, of audience went through the exhibition. And uh, as you can see, the exhibition had seven genres. So it actually had um, all sorts. The committee was embracing all sorts of styles, both from traditional uh, Chinese genres and uh, the Western, the recently acquired ones. And most interesting to me is that in, they included foreign artists. And they call it the National Exhibition, but they included the foreign artists. And uh, they published the journal, as I just said, the Three Daily, and regularly. And, that, and then after the exhibition, they published um, a book or, or combination and of, of the journal uh, afterwards. Um, um, I found a copy of that journal in Shanghai Museum, at Shanghai Library. I'm still working on that. And they also have a lot of advertisements on that. And in the journal, they do argue about how to educate the masses, how to uh, make art accessible to the general populace. Thank you, Dr. Wang, for this enlightening lecture. Um, I would like, actually like to entertain um, your final question. And um, it's because I believe art is an expression of cultural ideas. It's almost a representation of ideological forces. So um, you said, obviously, at that time, China is war-torn, and also that um, you know, there's this Western influence, almost like a uh, colonialism, if you like. Um, so I suppose for all these Chinese intellectuals and art artists to actually go to Europe, um, to, to actually learn from them, is sort of an, an acknowledgement that, you know, in fact this, this um, Western thing is actually more superior and anything that's classical and, you know, um, traditionally Chinese is, you know, somewhat inferior. And so that shaped the development of art in, in modern Chinese history. Now, had the Chinese said, um, well, I think, you know, maybe we can develop on the traditional Chinese art and go back to the classical and not sort of almost, if you like, bow down to the Western um, influence, how do you think the development of the history of art in China would have differed? Um, thank you. Uh, that's uh, also an interesting question. Thanks. But the Chinese never totally disregard their own artistic tradition. As I have shown you, there were Shanghai school uh, in the early 1910s and 20s. They were doing precisely how to rejuvenize uh, the Chinese painting. And, uh, and there was always the National Essence School in the 1910s and 20s, the Chinese called Guo Cui Pai. The English translation is the National Essence School because there are uh, a lot of other Chinese intellectuals or elite thinkers also believed, actually, uh, in order to modernize, we mustn't forget the core 
of ourselves. There was groups of that, except modern Chinese history and modern Chinese intellectuals' history were written by their enemies, by their opponents. So you see more often that modern Chinese intellectual history talks about how Chinese learned from the West rather than how Chinese try to rejuvenize their tradition or go back to the uh, classical times or go back to the heydays. There were elite thinkers also doing that at the time. I think we can finish up there. Thank you very much, Dr. Wang, for your presentation, and we all look forward to your further research. Thank you. Thank you.